Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, May 18th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. What's next now that China has officially landed their first rover on Mars? How come us mammals don't have bright fluorescent plumage like birds or cool neon stripes like bugs? A panel of scientists weighs in. And the lesser-known detail that makes the real-life story of the Bronte sisters even more goth and tragic than it already was. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. You likely heard over the weekend that China landed their first rover on Mars. Called Zhurong in honor of the god of fire in Chinese mythology, the six-wheeled robot touched down in Utopia Planitia in Mars's northern hemisphere. China is only the second nation after the U.S. to successfully land on Mars and keep the spacecraft there, and its landing location of Utopia Planitia, which it picked after orbiting the planet for a few months in search of an optimal landing zone, is the same one that NASA's Viking 2 landed on in 1976. Quoting the BBC, the robot looks a lot like NASA's Spirit and Opportunity vehicles from the 2000s. It weighs some 240 kilograms and is powered by fold-out solar panels. A tall mast carries cameras to take pictures and aid navigation. Five additional instruments will investigate the mineralogy of local rocks and the general nature of the environment, including the weather. Like the American rovers, Zhurong has a laser tool to zap rocks to assess their chemistry and a radar to look for subsurface water ice, end quote. While in general, Zhurong is more similar to NASA's older Mars rovers and not the current tech of Perseverance, Zhurong does outmatch Perseverance in at least one way. It's equipped with a ground-penetrating radar that can detect activity in structures as far as 100 meters underground, which is 10 times more than Perseverance can. And hopefully this uber-powerful radar will help Zhurong find the subsurface water ice it's looking for, and which will be so crucial to potential human colonies on Mars. Expanding on Zhurong's mission plans, the MIT Technology Review said, quote, Tianwen-1's purpose is to use its 13 instruments, 7 on the orbiter, 6 on the rover, to study the geology and soil mineralogy of Mars, map its water ice distribution, probe the electromagnetic and gravitational forces of the planet, and characterize its surface climate and environment. While the orbiter will observe and measure these things from a global perspective and snap images down to a 2-meter resolution, Zhurong will home in on points of intrigue at the surface. It will use its spectroscope to find out what the soil is made of, measure magnetic fields on the ground, and track weather changes like temperature and winds." End quote. And while the MIT Tech Review notes that NASA is currently barred from working with the Chinese space program, they did at least coordinate with each other to sync up the launches of their two rovers in February and ensure they wouldn't, you know, crash into each other. February also saw the launch of the UAE's Hope Mars Orbiter. The skies and lands of Mars are getting crowded, but it's all been a long time coming. Several other space agencies have been trying to successfully land spacecrafts on Mars for decades. Quoting again from the MIT Tech Review, half of all missions to Mars end in failure. The Soviet Union previously landed a spacecraft on Mars in 1971, but communication was lost just 110 seconds later. 
As recently as 2017, the European Space Agency's Schiaparelli lander crashed on its way to the Martian surface. China's first attempt on Mars was actually as part of Russia's 2001 Phobos-Grunt mission to explore Mars and its moon Phobos. That spacecraft failed to leave Earth's orbit and ended up re-entering Earth's atmosphere months later, leading China to pursue its own independent mission to Mars." End quote. So this Chinese rover hasn't come out of nowhere, and scientists around the world say that's a strong sign of how the Chinese space agency has leveled up. Jason Davis of the Planetary Society said, quote, This, to me, says they're getting right up there in terms of one of the world's premier space agencies, just by the sheer fact that this has not been done by many people. And this isn't a fluke. It's not like they just randomly launched and got lucky. They've clearly been working toward this, end quote. And while you might expect this could cause some political tensions internationally, the BBC notes that both NASA and the Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, commended China for its achievement. And as far as most scientists who've commented on it are concerned, this is good for planetary exploration and for science overall. The more parties you have working on one goal, the more various outcomes and critical findings you can achieve. As Davis said, quote, in terms of pure science, I'm very excited to see what the mission uncovers, end quote. You ever think about the fact that some animals out there, like birds, bugs, and deep-sea creatures, are naturally breathtaking in their brightly colored physical appearances? We humans have to don clothing, dye our hair, or get tattoos and piercings to even attempt to look as cool as some of those other animals. And it's not just a human problem. All mammals are equally boring when it comes to color and style. Why is that? In their latest edition of their Giz Asks series, Gizmodo spoke to a large panel of experts to explain why it is that some animals get to look so much cooler than others. Matthew Toomey, an assistant professor of biological science at the University of Tulsa, takes us back to the origin of mammals, which was also the era of the dinosaurs. Dinosaurs, the apex predators of the time, Toomey points out, were primarily diurnal and had a really sharp color vision. So a lot of early mammals developed coloring that could easily camouflage with the environment. A lot of them also became nocturnal and lost a lot of their color vision since it wasn't as important as other senses like smell and hearing at night. Because they didn't, and still don't, have great variety in their color vision, they weren't really attracted to mates on the basis of what color fur they had or how it might be decorated. Other animals like birds, who have four different photoreceptors compared to most mammals two, and humans and some primates is three, recognize all kinds of color in their plumage that's used for both mating and intimidation. Toomey also points out, quote, the nocturnal bottleneck may have also limited the palette of pigments available to mammals. Whereas the bodies of birds, insects, and reptiles are colored with a range of pigments, mammal hair and fur is colored with just one class of pigment molecules, melanins, which produce a limited variety of colors ranging from black to brown and auburn. While other animals employ melanin in complex optical nanostructures to create iridescence in their feathers and scales, it's exceedingly rare in mammals. Like complex color vision, it's likely that these mechanisms of vivid color production were lost as our distant ancestors lived their secretive nocturnal lives in the shadow of the dinosaurs. 
end quote. Or as Richard Plum, a professor of ornithology, ecology, and evolutionary biology at Yale University puts it, birds have those four photoreceptors and are highly social, so they spend a lot of their time just looking for beautiful things. Mammals, meanwhile, quote, we're walking around in the dark for like a hundred million years trying to keep from being eaten by dinosaurs, end quote. Side note, that dude's name is literally Professor Plum, so if you ever have him over in your parlor room, just keep an eye out for lead pipes. But back on topic, bugs, meanwhile, kind of evolved to be so colorful for the same reason that mammals evolved to be less so. Alma Kelber, a professor of functional zoology at Lund University, says, quote, Many bugs don't have brilliant colors to attract mates, but to warn predators who want to eat them. Many bugs are eaten by birds, so their colors are for birds to see them and avoid them, either because they taste badly, are poisonous, or mimic other bugs that are. End quote. And several scientists also pointed out that some mammals are brightly colored or patterned, like the green-furred, long-lived sloths, bright pink dolphins, orange golden lion tamarins, and red pandas. The best example of mammals that retained the more complex vision capabilities and evolved with more vivid colors in their skin or fur is old-world primates, like mandrels who have very colorful faces, and the African macaques who, apparently, have literal blue balls. Professor Kelber quoted Charles Darwin, saying of those monkeys, "...no other member in the whole class of mammals is so colored in so extraordinary a manner as the adult male mandrels." End quote. Penn State anthropology professor Nina G. Jablonski and senior research assistant George Chaplin explain those old-world primate examples, saying, quote, These blue colors are optical colors, not produced by pigments, but by highly oriented bundles of collagen in the skin which scatter visible light. This process, called Rayleigh scattering, is the same process which makes the sky appear blue. The same animals also have bright red skin on their backsides, and mandrels on their noses, too, produced by hemoglobin in the superficial blood vessels. Hemoglobin also makes the estrous swellings of many female primates appear bright red." End quote. And they also expand on the melanin pigments for the hair that Toomey introduced. Quoting again, Mammalian hair gets its color from two melanin pigments, the yellow-red pheomelanin and the intensely dark brown eumelanin. The melanin-producing cells in mammalian hair follicles produce different mixtures of these pigments at different times to produce coats of many different colors. This makes it possible for mammals to produce anything from bright yellow to near black, as well as the absence of pigment, white, and almost every conceivable shade of gray, brown, reddish-brown, and greeny-brown in between. In contrast to birds, mammals lack the ability to produce colored hairs containing pigments called carotenoids. This is why you don't see mammals colored like cardinals, but interestingly, the blue colors of bird feathers are also produced by optical effects, produced by light impinging on oriented collagen bundles." End quote. As Greg Gether, a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UCLA, points out, the fact that old-world primates do exhibit those bright blue colors and have retained three photoreceptors is the exception that supports the larger hypothesis here. Humans, by the way, are a part of the old-world primates branch, so a lot of things that are typical of mammals writ large, being nocturnal, only having two photoreceptors, etc., don't apply to us. But unfortunately, we broke away from the macaque line too soon to have bright red or blue faces and private parts. What a shame.
The Bronte sisters, you know, Charlotte, Emily, and Anne, Charlotte wrote Jane Eyre, and Emily wrote Wuthering Heights, and the less well-known, if only because Charlotte refused to allow it to be republished, but in some ways most influential novel in terms of feminism, Anne's The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Add in the poetry, paintings, and translations of Bonus Bronte, their brother Branwell, and altogether you've got one pretty remarkable family. Their flames burned bright and fast, however, with each one of the four siblings dying before their 40s, with Emily, Anne, and Branwell each passing away right around age 30 within mere months of each other. For these progenitors of gothic literature, their tragically early deaths have often been depicted as mournfully poetic, reality imitating fiction, as it were. While their causes of death are officially believed to be from tuberculosis, Literary Hub points out that many people spin the incredibly close siblings' cause of death as being grief for one another. But there's another explanation, which, with apologies for being a bit glib, is even more goth. An 1850 report by Benjamin Herschel Babbage of the small parish town of Hayworth in which the Brontes lived and died found that everyone in that town spent their lives drinking water contaminated by the local graveyard, which sat right next to the parsonage in which the Bronte family lived. And drinking water tinged with dead bodies wasn't the only sanitation issue in Hayworth. Here's what the British Library says of the Babbage report, quote, Hayworth was a small industrial mill town, and the view onto the moors was broken by tall, smoking chimneys. Excrement ran down the street. For want of sewers, fenced-in areas held human waste, awful from the slaughterhouse and pigsty waste for up to months at a time. Housing was poorly ventilated and overcrowded, with several dwellings and cellars. Perhaps most appallingly, Babbage's investigation confirmed that the graveyard, situated on the hill at the top of the town and in front of the Brontes' home, was so overcrowded and poorly oxygenated that decomposing putrid matter filtered into the water supply. End quote. In fact, the Brontes weren't even unusual in Hayworth. The average life expectancy for the town was just 25.8 years old, and over 40% of people died before the age of six. The back-to-back -back deaths of the youngest Brontes was also not the only tragedy to befall the family. Their older siblings, Maria and Elizabeth, both passed away as preteens in 1825 after falling ill with, guess what, tuberculosis. And Literary Hub adds another finding from the Babbage report, quote, Babbage, seeking to get to the bottom of these statistics, found, among the other things, that there were not enough privies for the population, and those they had were filthy, not properly drained, and, bizarrely, much too public. Two of the privies used by a dozen families each are in the public street, he wrote, not only within view of the houses, but exposed to the gaze of passers-by, whilst a third, as though even such a situation were too private, is perched upon an eminence commanding the whole length of the main streets. The cesspit beneath this privy would sometimes overflow into the street. A water tap was two yards away from its door." End quote. Living in such unsanitary conditions, it makes perfect sense that the inhabitants of Hayworth would be weaker and more susceptible to illness, like tuberculosis. Today, there are over 40,000 bodies interred in the Hayworth Cemetery, some buried 10 deep on top of one another. The conditions creating a vicious cycle in which the dead produced more dead. 
The Guardian also points out that the non-stop funerals in their community, in addition to the family's own tragedies, the children's mother also died shortly after the birth of Anne, the youngest, no doubt explains the excruciatingly morose themes of many of their novels. The Babbage Report fortunately precipitated improvements to the town's sanitary conditions. A small win for Patriarch Patrick Bronte, who had been the one to commission the report in the first place, as he worked through his grief for his three children after already losing two others and his first wife. After the report was published, Bronte continued petitioning the newly established General Health Board to construct more toilets and an improved reservoir in the parish. His grief-motivated quest for data and fight to protect the community in which he served as resident parish priest inspired one travel writer last year to call him the Dr. Fauci of his time. That might be a bit much, but it is good to hear that through the many years of tragedy in that parish, community members were finally able to get those in power to take action. It's a tragic tale for sure, but like many of the Bronte sisters' novels, through the gloom, there's at least a small glimmer of peace at the end, and optimism for the future. So, Legends of the Hidden Temple is officially coming back. The Nickelodeon game show featuring kids solving puzzles and running through an ancient ruin-themed obstacle course is being rebooted on the CW, and instead of trying to update it for its original demographic of elementary schoolers, they're instead aiming for the now-adults who grew up watching it. So it will feature commensurately tougher challenges and allegedly better prizes for the adults, although... You know, I'd take a pair of neon roller skates and a Garfield telephone. Heck yeah. But don't worry, despite all the changes, the giant Mayan Olmec head and the classic team names like the Purple Parrots and the Red Jaguars will return. Legends of the Hidden Temple has had a few reboot attempts in the past, including a 2016 made-for-TV movie and a planned series on Quibi, which shut down before the show could premiere. If you want to try your hand at the temple run on this latest incarnation, the show is now casting. I'll put a link in the show notes. You have to apply as a team of two, be over 21, and able to be in L.A. in July. No word on if you get to choose your team based on the loyalties you established in 1994. But that's it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.